Thanks, Amanda and Luke. Um, good morning, everyone. My name's Lee. I'm one of the ministers here, the youth and young adults minister here. Um, I'd love it if you kept your Bibles open to Mark chapter 11 and 12. Um, I'm sure we've all heard the term hangry before. So when you get angry because you're hungry, um, it's a word that's become part of our vocab. It's been around for a few years. Um, actually, it was added to the Oxford Dictionary back in 2015. I thought it was not like a legit word, but it is. Um, and it's also got some scientific backing to it. Um, I don't really, I'm not really a science person, but something about hormones and blood sugar levels and all that sort of stuff. But who notices that they get hangry? Put your hand up. Luke, my goodness, imagine <laughs> 90Ks down Essex Street, no food. <laughs> Wow. Um, I do. Um, and also tiredness and stress and a whole bunch of other things makes me angry. Um, so it's a, it's a helpful recent discovery for us. If we notice that we're a bit angrier than usual, then we might just need to, to eat something. Um, but we should have been onto this a long time ago. Because look at what leads to Jesus cursing a fig tree and tipping over tables in the temple. Verse 12 in your Bibles, chapter 11. Jesus was hungry. Jesus is hangry. I don't know what you make of the Jesus we see in this account. Maybe for you, Jesus is a little bit more relatable. Ah, he's a bit like me. A little bit more human here. Or maybe it disrupts your view of gentle Jesus. Or maybe you don't know what to do. It feels too conflicting. Whatever your initial reaction is to these historical, hangry outbursts, it raises a vital question for every single one of us that we all need to wrestle with. What makes Jesus angry? Surely the eternal Son of God who made the universe isn't just angry here because he missed out on some figs for breakfast. But maybe if there were figs on that tree, he never would have tipped over tables in the temple. No, no way. This, there's definitely something deeper going on here. And let's be clear, this isn't an outburst. God's anger, Jesus' anger, is right and justified, and it is consistent throughout the whole Bible. And so if you're someone here today and you're looking into this whole Christianity thing, then what angers God, what angers Jesus is an important question to answer because it gets to the heart of who Jesus is. What angers Jesus reveals what he deeply values. And if you're going to trust him, if you're going to put your hope and your faith in him, then you need to know Jesus' heart. You need to know what makes him angry. And for those of us who do trust and love and follow Jesus, it's just as important. Because as those of us who follow him, we should share in what angers Jesus. And if what angers Jesus we find present in our own life, then we should seek to rectify that. So, what is it that really angers Jesus? 
Number one, appearance-heavy Christianity angers Jesus. Let me explain. The fig tree incident is weird. Um, For those of you who love plants, maybe it's distressing. But to the first century Jewish person, like these disciples, if they'd been taught well from their scriptures, our Old Testament, then they would see that Jesus was making a judgment on the spiritual health of God's people. Um, So there's a couple of examples here. In Hosea chapter 9 verse 10, God here speaks positively about the Israel he founded. He says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Oh, don't need to skip this there. Um, But in Micah chapter 7 verse 1, God speaks negatively of his people who have strayed from him. He says, what misery is mine. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. And so by cursing this fig tree, Jesus is saying God's people aren't being the, aren't bearing the fruit that shows that there's distinctly God's. Uh, we see this in the, acted out in the temple. Um, which has become a market for their own business endeavors, rather than a place where all people can come and encounter God. And we see this in the parable in chapter 12, where Jesus rebukes the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the leaders of God's people who are impressive on the outside. They appear so good, but they are self-serving hypocrites. We'll get to those verses, but... There's something for us to notice about this fig tree. Uh, Look at verse 13 in your Bibles. As Luke noticed, it is not the season for figs. So why does Jesus get so annoyed that it doesn't have figs? He would have known this. Well, we're also told it is in leaf. And so it should have had along with its leaves, early fruit. But there was nothing, nothing but leaves. It had the appearance of being a healthy, fruitful tree, but on closer inspection, it's far from it. You know, the temple that Jesus approaches as well is bustling with people. It has the appearance of thriving, but it's far from the place God wants it to be. The religious elite... The leaders of God's people are impressive in their strict obedience to God's law, but they fear people more than God. This forces me to ask myself, is my Christianity all appearance? It would be so easy to fool people, to fool you and to fool myself. I stand up here and preach sermons. I lead ministry teams. I'm a minister. There's Christian books on my desk. I can talk the talk. But am I producing the sort of fruit that you'd expect from someone who surrenders their life to Jesus? Love, patience, joy, gentleness. And am I growing in these things? Well, before you worry too much about me, what about you? Is it all appearance? 
Do you hide behind regular church attendance, a busy ministry schedule, the happy, high-achieving family? Maybe you've got us all fooled. Your Christian life looks leafy green, but you can't remember the last time you picked up God's word or you really prayed or even took a sermon to heart. Maybe you've even got yourself fooled. Well, what about all saints? What about our church? You know, our vision is for a thriving church. But let's not be satisfied with just the leafy green appearance of thriving. Yeah, our services might have healthy numbers, talented musicians. Our kids and youth are having a good time. There's something for everyone. We're doing well financially. We're supporting this person and that person, this missionary. But what if we scratch beneath the surface? Are we dependent on prayer? Are we being shaped by God's word? Do we befriend the lonely, care for the sick, show hospitality to those on the fringe? Is this a place for all people? If Jesus came, would he find fruit among the leaves? Among the leaves? Well, to help us answer this question, let's dig a little deeper and see the second thing that angers Jesus. Consumeristic Christianity. Jesus takes to the temple, like I said, it's become this bustling marketplace, a great business opportunity for the Jewish people who are oppressed. So this is a good thing. It's a great way to make money out of Gentile travelers, pilgrims who have come to worship and pray to God. But Jesus says they've made this place a den of robbers. People are being cheated and taken advantage of. They're using the temple for their own gain. And Jesus is rightly angry. He's having none of it. Jesus is there from morning till evening. I always pictured this event that he just kind of came in and for about 20 minutes cracked some whips and that was it. He's there all day, tipping over tables, herding out sheep, flapping out the doves, And doing all he can to stop this evil happening. And he's teaching them why he's doing this as well. He's explaining himself. So in verse 17, Mark records his main point. That this is meant to be a place where people from all nations can meet with God. Where Gentiles from far off can pray to God. And so again... We need to ask ourselves, has our Christianity become self-seeking? Do we bring a consumeristic attitude to our relationship with God? You know, what's in it for me? What do I get out, out of this? How is this going to add value to my life, to my day, to my week? I'll let Jesus into the areas of my life that he fits comfortably in, but not into this relationship. Not into this part of my work. Not into this or that area of my life. To be honest, I struggle with this consumeristic attitude. I think for me, it often ruins my time in God's word. 
Because I think it has to be something amazing and inspiring. And maybe it does for you too. But something that helps me, um, that a friend said a few years ago, is viewing my time with God like a healthy diet. You know, a given meal on its own isn't always going to be really tasty. Uh, It doesn't always leave you feeling amazing and on top of the world. But I know that it's good for me. I need regular, healthy meals. And same with God's Word. It's, it's easy to be discouraged when, you know, time, in our time with God, but we need to trust that it's doing great things for our soul, even when it feels uninspiring. Even when we're left with more questions than answers. What about church? And our small groups, do we turn up bringing a consumeristic mindset? What's in it for me? I hope they play the songs I like. I hope I don't get stuck in some awkward conversation. I hope the message is relevant for me. I hope someone asked me about my weekend and my children and my life. If you could finish the sentence... I love all saints because, what would you put there? I should go this way for you. But what would you put there? It's convenient. It's close. My friends come. My kids have friends that come. The coffee's pretty good. The music's good. There's lots of people here. All good things. But they should be secondary in our hearts. Is our church a place where all sorts of people feel welcome and safe to come? Where they can wrestle with the bigger issues of faith and encounter Jesus? Are we inviting friends and family who don't know Jesus here? Is All Saints self-serving? Does it help just us who are here? Or is it outward looking? Maybe you could ask yourself, and it's challenging for me to ask this of myself, when was the last time you spoke to someone who was new? And it's a great opportunity now that we've got this mixed service because I'm sure there's a lot of new faces. Have we come to consume or have we come to serve as Jesus served us? Do we ask what's in it for me and how I can help? Do it, sorry, do we ask what's in it for me or how I can help serve and support others? So Jesus is angered by an appearance heavy Christianity and a consumeristic Christianity. And lastly, this is not a great title, but he's angered by minimal Jesus Christianity. Um, in um, the second reading that Amanda read, it's ironic that After Jesus criticizes God's people for, it's it's all about man. It's all about fear of man, um, for having an appearance of godliness, but they've lost connection with God completely. That in verse 28, he's questioned about what gives him the right to make these judgments, to do these things and say these things. The discussion is about whether what Jesus is doing has merely human origin or is from heaven. 
But Jesus is not only good at flipping tables, because in verse 30, he flips the question back on them. He asks them about John the Baptist and what they think about his authority. And by doing this, he exposes that they're motivated by fear of people and not God, and so they don't say anything. And then at the start of chapter 12, he really takes to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Um, These highly respected religious gurus of the day, everyone would have looked up to them. And he tells them this not-so-subtle parable. It's one of the easiest parables to understand, and it has a brutal message. He says, this vineyard, these people that God has entrusted with you, you have sought to take full ownership of them and kicked God out of the picture. You're the greedy, violent farmers. You've been completely self-seeking. Every time God has sent a servant, a prophet, a critic, a word from God, you've completely backhanded it into the face of God. Then in the parable, in verses 6 to 8, Jesus foretells that they're going to kill him, the Son of God. And right at the end, in verse 12, they knew he was rebuking them. They knew this was about them and they wanted him dead. They wanted Jesus out of the picture completely. When God, when Jesus are pushed out of the picture, this rightly angers Jesus. Especially when our lives look so godly and impressive. If our Christianity has very little focus on Jesus, then what's the point? I know it sounds ridiculous. Surely that would never happen. Surely, like, there's not a church out there that just has completely disregarded Jesus. It happens. How many ministers, pastors and people make it all about themselves? We've heard the stories. But sometimes it's in subtle ways. We're good at making it about ourselves. But are we actually on about Jesus? Are we here to see Jesus glorified? To be honest, sometimes it's hard to know. My motivations are often mixed. We're sinful. I know that all saints, we're mixed too. Don't think that a decision gets made here and it's perfect and it's completely godly. It doesn't happen. We have and we will make self-serving decisions. We will lose sight of those who don't know Jesus. We will focus on ourselves. We will get caught up in all sorts of discussions and plans and find ourselves thinking about our own needs. So what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves becoming something that angers Jesus? Well, right in the middle of our passage, as the disciples are confronted with this withered, lifeless fig tree, Jesus says in verse 22, have faith. There will be churches and times for us as a church when branches look withered. We might look at ourselves and feel withered. Upon honest self-reflection, we notice we've lost sight of Jesus There's been little fruit and we're withering. And we can double down like the religious leaders and keep putting on a show 
and hold Jesus at arm's length and not hear his rebukes. But into this space, Jesus urges us to have faith. Verse 24, to pray. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. There's a lot here to unpack about prayer, but into the context of a Christianity, a Christian life that has strayed, it's humble, dependent prayer upon God that is the antidote. It's a life of leaning on the love and grace and forgiveness of God. If we want our church to be a place of prayer for all people, a place for all people to encounter Jesus, then it's a no-brainer that we're encountering Jesus, that we're on our knees, that we're humbly before God in prayer. When we're on our knees in prayer, where prayer is the first thing that we go to in all our endeavours. Tim Keller says, unless we put a priority on the inner life, we turn ourselves into hypocrites. If we want this place to bear the fruit of Jesus, if we want to be grapes in the desert, the early unexpected fruit that brings Jesus joy and draws many into the love of God, then we'll emphasize our inner life. Our Christianity will be more than a show on a Sunday. It'll be every day. We'll habitually be on our knees in prayer and our Bibles won't gather dust on the table next to our bed. Jesus will take center stage in our everyday lives. Jesus will be our everything. His grace will shape all we do And as it says in chapter 12, verse 11, this will be marvelous. This will bring Jesus joy. That's the thriving we want to be. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your son, that you sent him to forgive all our sin, all our mistakes. God, I pray that your grace would be at work in our lives and in our community, that it would energize us, that it would cause us to thrive and bear the fruit of grace and love and joy and patience and forgiveness to one another, to this community, that all saints would be a place for all people, where all people can encounter you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen.